Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin with Dan Jurgen, Vice Chairman of IHS Market, author of The Prize and the Quest, and he joins us here in New York on Bloomberg Surveillance. And Dan, let me start with that news we got yesterday about Saudi Arabia uh, telling OPEC it reduced production last month by the most in eight years, uh, more than it had pledged to do. Give us the, the significance of that, and, and why were they able to cut more than they, they forecast they'd be able to? Well, the re- what's going on is a very high degree of compliance within OPEC. People have always been skeptical with good reason of uh, OPEC cuts. In 2008, when they cut, they only cut about 60%, and now it looks like they've cut over 90%. Saudi Arabia has taken the lead, and I think Saudi Arabia is the most important member by far, and they want this uh, this this un, this new type of agreement between OPEC and non-OPEC to be a success, and we can see the impact in the marketplace. Warren, this is just a moment. I want to break a headline here. Crossing the Bloomberg right now, Aetna and Humana are ending their merger pact uh, that had been uh, called into question by the federal government. Uh, Aetna is now going to pay a $1 billion fee. Uh, having spoken with Mark Bertolini, the, the CEO of Aetna, a couple of weeks ago, it sounded like they were weighing whether or not to go forward. Indeed, Aetna and Humana have decided not to go forward with their merger pact. Now back to uh, Dan Jurgen. How surprising was this news about uh, Saudi Arabia? You, you said the the importance can't be understated. How surprising was the news that they uh, had cut so much? Uh, I don't think it was surprising uh, so much because you saw that with a new, relatively new Saudi petroleum minister, Khalid al-Fala, that he really was taking the lead in, in making this work. And I think that the cuts are a demonstration and a message to everybody else. And just before they made a deal last November, they said, if there's not a deal, we're going to produce as much as we can. So the other side of it is that there is a deal. And if it's holding with other people, including the Russians, by the way, Mm. who are cutting back, which there was skepticism about, uh, they want to do their part to make this work. We're going to have uh, the minister uh, at our conference in Houston in a couple of weeks. And I think he's going to give a strong message about wanting to see some stability in the oil market. When you survey... When you look at uh, the parties to that agreement, both OPEC and non, who's having the the biggest trouble keeping up uh, the end of the bargain? Uh, Well, there's certain countries that are out of it. Uh, Libya and uh, Nigeria were given a free pass. Uh, I think the bulk of the cuts, the most determined people, are are Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf countries. They're the ones who really stand out. People were looking very carefully. The Russians have been cutting. They still have more to cut. And the Iranians, it was a very unusual deal because they sort of, there was a kind of a, a, a deal or everybody could claim a victory. The Iranians could have a higher quota, except the others feel they can't reach that quota. A couple nights ago, there was a small matter of the Ninth District Court in San Francisco. And I, like everybody else, was riveted with a phone call on television of the appeals court going through the process. And David Gura, the bad news was I was watching MSNBC, Uh and they kept playing in the upper right corner the president meeting with muckety-mucks within the oil business. Uh And he walked around the table shaking hands. And I swear, every time he walked around the table and shook Dan Juergen's hand, you handed him a copy of Commanding Heights. Did you really? uh, I I only, you you love that book so 
so much, Tom, that you imagined it. You saw it happen. I only wish that were the case. But it is a very uh, – that was a meeting of the Presidential Strategic and Policy Committee. What did so you was, learn? Um, I learned that uh, – I mean, there were a couple things that really jumped out. One was just this whole question of regulation, not just – is there too much regulation, but contradictory regulation from too many different agencies? And the other was a really big focus on infrastructure. Within this is if you had had handed the president your iconic book, Commanding Heights, <laughs> what in it should he learn? Well, I think that these things go in cycles. Uh, the role of the, the frontier between governments and markets is shifting and continually shifts. And I think we're seeing that now. And I think Kind of right now around the world, there's kind of confusion about kind of what are yeah. the new rules of globalization. But your book is the arch non-zero-sum book. Your book is one primal scream about anti-mercantilism, about a value to cooperation and coordination. Do you see any likelihood of that within this administration? Well, I think that uh, if in uh, with some of the people, I think that there's still the you know, the U.S., we have 40 million jobs, over 40 million jobs in the U.S. that are a result of foreign trade. And I think that number has kind of been left out of the debate. What have you heard from the administration about energy policy at this point? How inchoate is it? Do, do we have a sense of what it's going to be? Well, I think it's going to be uh, not, first of all, it's going to be not more regulation. And secondly, I think it's going to be trying to solve this uh, bottleneck about infrastructure where it takes seven years and several billion dollars not to approve a pipeline. Uh, things have to be done in reasonable times, and there has to be reasonable times in terms of uh, challenges to it. But there's a mismatch between where our new supplies are and our infrastructure structure, and we got to get that fixed. How catalytic is that Keystone XL? In other words, if, if Donald Trump pushes Good it question. through, if we get it built, uh, are we going to see more like it? What's it going to lead to? Well, that was a very particular case because it needed State Department approval to just cross the border. And uh, I think it will be a message. TransCanada, the, the pipeline company, has to decide that it wants to go ahead and build it to some degree. We've seen a, a shift in uh, uh, where new supplies coming from, but there's a lot of new Canadian supplies coming from. I think it would be a big message because, you know, pipeline approval seems to be as exciting as watching paint dry. Uh, but then now it, that became really uh, a, well, a totemic. Will these pipelines that are in the news, will they change the price of oil? Uh if you build, yes, I mean, I think if you if you have more flexible supply, uh, and if you can bring more supply to markets, then that thing called supply and demand will work. We've talked a lot about how Rex Tillerson's skills uh, at ExxonMobil would be applicable to the State Department. Let's take another step back and just look at sort of the, the degree to which the Secretary of State has to deal with oil and energy uh, issues. How, 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 big a, how big a portion of the plate does that occupy? Well, there is an energy bureau in this uh, State Department that was set up a few years ago. And so energy is one of the geopolitical issues that the president, uh, the secretary of state will deal with. But I think that uh, it's going to be a relatively small part. And I think that uh, Mr. Tillerson is going to focus on the, you know, the big complicated questions that are out there. He's a very experienced person in the global economy. He knows a lot of countries and, uh, and he's very measured in terms of his decision making. Help us with the interplay here between the dollar, which is slightly weaker this morning, and the, the price of oil. What, what's, the, what's the correlation there? Well, there isn't always a correlation, yeah. but often there's a correlation in which a stronger dollar means oil prices are down and uh, vice versa. But, of course, there are a lot of other factors that go into it. And the predictions about what the dollar is going to do is one of the uh, factors in the discussion about this border adjustment tax. We started out talking about Saudi Arabia and OPEC and, uh, and the deal, the agreement. 
let's meanwhile back at the ranch what's happening here in the u.s when you look at the uh, the energy landscape here? Uh, right now it's Permamania, uh, the Permian Basin is the place to be. That's where people are spending money. And we've seen that U.S. production has bottomed out and is going to start increasing. And it's an industry that's a lot more efficient than it was a couple of years ago at, at IHS Market. We, we, are, we just did this analysis and see if you spend a dollar today, you're going to get about two and a half times as much oil for that dollar as you would have in 2014. Yeah. I have the clearest recollection too many years ago you talking about $40 oil and basically being left off the show. You were more than right. I'll give you 50 plus or minus 10 bucks. Who's counting? What is a Jurgen five-year-out call on well, a barrel? You know, don't have a single number. I think this year we're probably in a 50 to $60 range. I think at the end of the decade we'll see price. We should probably see prices uh, you know, higher than they are today because you're going to need it in order to get the kind of long midterm and long-term investment that isn't happening right now around the world. You mentioned you're going to hear from that minister at that conference in Houston. Who else are you looking forward to hearing from when, when you look at uh, who's talking to whom and, and uh, where, where the conversation is at? Well, we're going to we'll, – we'll have – the Russian minister will be there uh, – the uh, we're hoping we'll have the new people from the administration, and we'll have a lot of the uh, uh, CEOs from the major companies there. So I think it's you know altogether we're going to have 300 speakers. So it's going to be a, a very rich conference in terms of uh, of content. We'll have both the Secretary General of OPEC and the head of the International Energy Agency together, and so uh, and I think of what tension does that create on stage. Well, it's, you know, they used to be butting heads, but now it's like a dialogue between the two of them. Uh, I think the other thing, there's a big question about what's happening with mobility. Dan Jurgen, thank you so much. And again, folks, some more modern book. I mentioned Commanding Eyes. Look at the quest. It is outstanding. David Gura and Tom Keene in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. I'm looking at the latest issue of Foreign Affairs magazine, the March-April issue. Trump time is the headline. Donald Trump pictured there surveying his domain and others, looking at the world. We see Vladimir Putin there astride a horse. Uh, a number of great pieces in this uh, issue, including one by Peter Fever, with whom we spoke yesterday of Duke University. A great conversation. You can check it out on our podcast as well. The editor of Foreign Affairs, Gideon Rose, is with us now. And let's pick up with what Chris Kirkham was just talking about there, the resignation of Michael Flynn as national security uh, advisor. How much of Donald Trump's foreign policy was a Flynn foreign policy? Well, nobody knows. Uh, and the biggest question that people in my area are wondering now is, okay, if Pence was out of the loop, was the president out of the loop as well or not? And nobody knows, and we will just have to see. Where do we go from here? There were all of these allegations that uh, General Flynn had spoken with the ambassador from Russia to the United States uh, during this interregnum between the election and, and when Donald Trump was sworn in. Will there be an investigation? Do we have any sense of where things go from here? Well, there is going to be an investigation. There already are investigations yep. about contacts between the Trump campaign and Trump operation and uh, Russia. Um, look, basically, there's this nagging possibility that keep that can't be denied of something truly nefarious, but nobody can really believe that there actually is anything nefarious going on, and it. So, so people are puzzled, right? There's been this positive. Uh, relationship with Russia that the Trump campaign has been steadfast about. The only thing, in fact, that they've been really <clears throat> constantly consistent about. Uh, and no one can quite figure out why. 
And uh, so you can't quite ex- – no one can believe the notion that there's some weird behind-the-scenes conspiracy, but no one can fully dismiss it on the basis of the evidence so far either. I mentioned we were talking with Peter Fever yesterday about the National Security Council staff and the uh, reported disarray uh, within. Uh, what does this mean for that? Uh, fold this into that. You've got, you've got Michael Flynn out now. Does that uh, stand to complicate things further, or is this an opportunity for the NSC and its staff to reset? Well, uh, the NSC is basically the president's personal foreign policy and national security staff. So the president gets whatever the president wants. Uh, It'll be fascinating to see who the replacement for Flynn will be. One thing that's already interesting is they promoted Kellogg to the number one spot, the acting spot, rather than the number two, technically, uh, KT McFarland. Uh, That would suggest that they don't have a whole lot of confidence in her necessarily, but we don't know. And um, the, uh, we, you know, look, the best way I can talk about the Difficulty in analyzing this administration is to look at the number two at state. So Rex Tillerson, impressive guy, but somebody who's never had much foreign policy experience, doesn't know the uh, the the building and so forth. So there's been a, everybody has said, well, that's why he's going to get a deputy who actually is a foreign policy professional. But they've kept floating names: people like Richard Haas, people like Elliot Abrams, people like John Bolton, and the names all get shot down. So they still haven't filled that post. But the names themselves range across the foreign policy spectrum, from realists to neoconservatives to other things. People you would never actually think of as being sent up by the same people for uh, for yeah. suggestions. So no one really knows what's going on or who they'll actually okay. pick. Away from General Flynn, and we'll all be buried in this in the next couple of days, you had cell phone national security over dessert at Mar-a-Lago. I was stunned that they did the the photos of the nuclear bag, the atomic bag. How do pros like you respond to that? Nobody who's a foreign policy professional that I know is anything other than just flabbergasted by the last month. On I mean, the other we're hand, all being, it's what almost like though they're, they're, they're trying to be like a tech company and fail faster because the pace at which this is playing out is so uh, rapid uh, that that nobody knows where it's going to go. The visibility, you know, the five-day forecast is three days. I can't fathom the vice president doing anything but being stunned at the juvenility of some of these actions. Um, the problem is that, you know, what was it that, was it George Bush who, uh, Gary Trudeau, uh, the George Bush father that Gary Trudeau said had his manhood and the blind trust. A lot of the people of this administration, uh, uh, unfortunately, seem to have their manhood uh, or femalehood yeah. in, a, in a blind trust because they, the boss is doing something. And when the boss says it, you have to go and do whatever the boss says. Just too short today. Gideon Rose, Absolutely, thank you so yeah. much. What a half hour. Dan, you're going to Gideon Rose together. I mean, David, is this great? It is great. Uh, this this is cover is incredible, by the way. Thank it you. Is. <laughs> it is. With the tweets, with the little birds tweeting around. Foreign Affairs Magazine, folks. Check it out. Is yeah. superb. It's a price of a fancy martini. Gideon Rose wasn't going to go to cheap martini. But a subscription, a print subscription, is something John Tucker looks forward to every month. I don't know. These days we could use the fancy martinis. Ah. Trump times. <laughs> there we go. Trump times. Trump time, rather. Okay, we like a little tension here. Robert Sinch nailing the strong Sterling call and certainly calling for Sterling stability, agreeing with him, Shahab Jalanus, at 
Credit Suisse really looking for moderate moderation within sterling. And Shahab, we've got other houses looking for really dramatically weak sterling. Uh, George Cervales at Deutsche Bank looking under 110. HSBC's at a long-term 110 call. What is the distinctive feature between your call of sterling stability versus those that have a much gloomier outlook? Well, I guess it also depends on what time horizon we look at this uh, on in the sense that uh, you know, over the next year or so, uh, it's unclear to us what type of new political news is going to materialize uh, that dramatically moves sterling relative to the news we've had in the past year. Uh, and I think if we see in that time period obvious signs that there's going to be huge disruption uh, in terms of the talks between the EU and the UK, then I'd be prepared to look again uh, at, at my forecast. But in, in, in the absence of that, uh, there's not really a strong catalyst for a dramatic fall at this point in time. Bear in mind, this currency has already had a very substantial fall in the past year. Um, and currencies <coughs> tend not to move in straight lines uh, on, on a permanent basis without fresh information. Uh, how much is going to change here when Article 50 is triggered, when this all begins? In other words, there, there's a lot that's priced in, but there is still a great, a huge unknown there looming on the horizon. Well, certainly Article 50 you know, has been discussed now for a long time, and, and it's timing as well. Uh, and I think the other very important dimension here is that for some time, the market wasn't sure whether we'd see hard Brexit or soft Brexit. Uh, hard Brexit being the idea that uh, you have a more disruptive, potentially, break in trade links. But what's being priced in now is effectively that, is, is hard Brexit. Uh, nobody's really discussing anymore the idea of a, of a soft Brexit. So that's already going a long way towards some of the worst scenarios that people had uh, for the pound, if you go back to, uh, let's say, six months ago. Um, which really means that going forward, we have to ask ourselves a new question. Are you going to see a disruptive Brexit uh, or a more benign version of hard Brexit. I think disruptive would require very obvious signs of stresses um, in the negotiations between the, the rest of the EU and the UK. Um, and as I said, I think that will take time to materialize, not least because we don't even know what position the, the EU will take, uh, given that many believe that you have to get through the French and German elections this year before there's even a very clear perspective on that. So that's many, many months ahead uh, from our perspective. What's the bigger driver here now? Is it politics? Is it central banks? I look at the Swiss National Bank and wonder about the potential for more intervention. Same thing with the, the Bank of Japan. I mean, uh, is politics trumping everything at this point? I, th I think that's right. I think politics is now ascendant um, and really... Uh, what, uh, the Trump election is obviously one factor behind that. Um, in fact, it's probably the key factor. Uh, for example, let's look at the Swiss franc. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you mentioned that the Swiss National Bank has had a, an intervention strategy on the currency for some period of time, um, even after the, the floor went. Um, now, if the US decides to press on the issue of currency manipulation, um, not just on China, but on other countries as well, uh, other trading regions, uh, that puts Switzerland in a potentially vulnerable place. Uh, and I think it makes the market have to consider whether, for example, the Swiss National Bank would feel it's politically expedient to continue with the current strategy. Um, so that's one of the, the areas we need to consider. Um, how will politics come through into central bank policy decisions. Another way to think about this as well, um, if, for example, the U.S. pushes through with border-adjusted taxation uh, on the fiscal front, and that leads to a strong dollar rally, will there be political pressure, for example, on the Federal Reserve not to hike rates mm -hmm. uh, in that type of environment uh, as a function of, of uh, 
having to acknowledge the uh, unusual fiscal reasons that, that the dollar is rallying. These are all new things for the market to digest and, and not easy to do at this point. Where are we in the digestion of uh, U.S. policy toward Mexico and how that's playing out in, in the Mexican currency? We've, as you said, had a long conversation about Article 50 since, uh, since back in June. Um, we, we've seen this sort of the, the potential for a wall or new policies play out in Mexico for some time as well. Is that priced in now when you look at, uh, at the value of uh, the Mexican currency? Well, certainly the Mexican policy uh, fell so substantially last year, it's a bit like the, our pound discussion, yeah. um, that it became harder for uh, new news to take it even even lower, or at least, let's just put it another way, the absence of new news right. was enough reason for it to go higher, um, especially as interest rates in Mexico are relatively high as well. So it's not easy to just sit there with a short Mexican peso position. Um, I think really for the currency to start to fall again, you do need to see uh, bad news come through on the NAFTA renegotiation front. Now, what we saw yesterday, for example, when uh, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau visited the U.S., was uh, a more benign outcome for yes, Canada, at yeah. least. Um, and that will have raised yeah. hopes that maybe Mexico will, get, will catch a break as well. So I think while that feeling persists, uh, the Mexican peso should hold up quite well. We've been getting great currency pair trades off of the simple question, where's the opportunity right now? We're all buried in the politics. I get that. You just gave us a great review. Where's the single trade to make alpha this morning? Well, this morning, uh, you know, we, we still like the, the high carry currencies. Uh, so the, the likes of the Brazilian real are performing well. The Russian ruble, in our view, will continue to perform well. These trades are seen as crowded trades by some, but in the same way that the market believes that for example, the U.S. stock market uh, is, is very right. high. Um, it, that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't have more underlying momentum to go higher. So which pair within real and ruble do you like? Well, we've for a long time liked uh, the ruble best in the emerging market space. Well, uh, dollar ruble, euro ruble, sterling ruble? Euro at the time is our favorite short position um, in for, for a number of reasons. Firstly... Uh, the political environment in Europe is clearly more more stressful uh, than in many other regions. Uh, and while people say that uh, the French election is, is now well understood and fully priced, in our view, when we look at things wow. like option volatilities, we, don't, we disagree with that. Mm. There's more room to price in, more risk for the euro. Of course, you also have the fact that you still have the euro is still a negative rate currency. So the combination of Offering negative rates and a lot of political risk, that's not really a good, a good one from an FX perspective. So euro is definitely one of our favorite f uh, funding currencies. And uh, as I mentioned, the Russian so the, ruble. So to summarize, your strong ruble, weak euro. That's what we like at the moment. And uh, we've, uh, as I said, buying the Russian ruble was one of our trades of the year uh, at the start of the year. Uh, and uh, I haven't changed my view on that one. Um, and euro, as we approach the French election, has much more downside. Just lastly, how are you watching Beijing in the year 2017? What are you looking for when you look at the, the Chinese currency? A number of things. Firstly, capital controls. Mm -hmm. Are the Chinese going to increase uh, capital controls? Because if, if the currency is under downward pressure, one of the most effective ways to stop that is to basically stop the selling and stop the locals trying to get out of their own currency. Uh, the second aspect I'm looking at is interest rates, local interest rates in China. Is China prepared to raise rates uh, significantly uh, to alleviate the downward pressure on the currency against the backdrop of an economy that many believe is still very leveraged and vulnerable to a, a sharp rise in interest rates? Um, and I think these two factors in the near term are the most important factors to mm. consider. In fact, what we've seen so far this year is m movement on both fronts. And that's one of the reasons, in our view, the Chinese currency is 
outperformed expectations so far this year. The question really is, can the Chinese economy tolerate persistent application of these policies? Yeah. This has been great. I just put out on Twitter that chart of the Bloomberg. We'll do that on Facebook Live, and uh, most certainly we'll put that on TV this uh, tomorrow morning, the idea of stronger ruble against weaker euro. I love doing that, David. We get the most interesting things off What was the, the pair yesterday? It was Kiwi something. It was Sterling Kiwi. Uh-huh. Stronger New Zealand versus <laughs> the brexit Sterling, although you just heard Shabs look there for some sterling resilience yep. versus the gloom crowd. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Robin Niblett with us right now with Chatham House. On short notice, good to catch up with you, Robin. After hey, we saw uh, General Flynn exit, um, last night. Tell us about the disarray within any government when you have to move people out abruptly. It's got to be a destabilizer, isn't it? Well, I think uh, it'll be destabilizing, not least given the fact that this is a presidency that obviously did not have a deep bench to draw upon from the outset when it was establishing its uh, administration. You know, if uh, Hillary Clinton had won, people say she had the first 4,000 uh, positions already lined up to, to take their, their, you know, their position in the government. Uh, the talk of the Trump administration is fairly empty corridors in the West Wing. And so if you lose somebody at such a central node in government um, and you don't have a deep bench behind it, it's going to uh, make life even more complicated. And we have a very complicated world to deal with. What was appealing uh, to President Trump about General Flynn? What did he like about him? I think uh, the loyalty factor, here's somebody who stepped up close to uh, the president right from the beginning, uh, you know, stood, took his back, took the most uh, ardent and campaign-worthy messages, including the locker up on Hillary Clinton, uh, a completely uncompromising stance on radical Islam, but on fighting ISIS. He was really the, the, the general that gave uh, Trump credibility when, at that point, the Republican defense establishment uh, was uh, at best leery and in many cases stepping out against him. So I think the loyalty stakes um, and the kind of get it done military uh, uh, figure who'd played uh, importantly in Afghanistan were the key issues for him. Yeah, the general who gave him credibility with the defense establishment. Are, are you thinking here that the replacement is going to be somebody who's been in the military as well? It seems like President Trump has an affinity for, uh, likes to, to surround himself in the foreign policy realm by those who have served in the military. Well, just, yeah, and on, on, the, on the credibility, I think Bill Flynn had credibility in terms with President Trump for being a tough guy and was somebody who stepped up as part of the defense establishment. But, of course, he was not popular within the defense establishment itself, having been, uh, in essence, fired from his position as head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. So uh, where we go here is potentially that if he sticks with the military track, and there's a, a general who stepped in, General Keith Kellogg, who stepped in as acting national security advisor, um, you know, uh, with David Petraeus' name in the, in the frame, uh, another, at least Admiral Harwood's name as well uh, in the frame, it looks highly likely that we would get another military figure, and we can clearly see that the president feels comfortable with them given the appointments he's made uh, to Secretary of Defense. However, you know, 
I think he's got to be thinking very carefully about the balance. You know, when we saw Steve Bannon uh, appointed as a principal to the National Security Council, you felt there was a desire to balance, let's call it establishment defense, with the more, uh, some more, you know, uh, unpredictable and, and, uh, and uh, tough voices. So you've got to work out who would it be in the defense establishment who could play the kind of Flynn-type role and be a counterbalance to the more uh, predictable, how can I put it, um, straightforward uh, internationalist, realist approach you'd associate with General Mattis. So picking the right person is going to be very complicated. We were talking with Peter Fever yesterday from Duke University about the NSC, and he said that it had gotten pretty sizable. Donald Trump hasn't been shy about saying he wants to reduce its, its size. Help us understand how the uh, foreign policy landscape changes in Washington, D.C. under President Trump. Do we see the Defense Department getting more power back, power that had been uh, transitioned over to the NSC? Well, I, I, you know, my first instinct would be to say that in all countries, not just in the U.S., um, security and foreign policy is concentrating more and more at the heart of the executive. You don't just see this in the United States. Uh, you saw it under President Obama, where in many cases, uh, uh, you know, senior advice that was coming from Secretary Clinton, Foreign Secretary, uh, from Leon Panetta, from others, was ignored, if, for example, in the case of, of Syria. So uh, the, the, the whole idea of a centralization of power, I think, is going to continue even under President Trump. It'll be very difficult, given given uh, the way that people look to presidents yeah. these days or heads of government in any country to take the lead on foreign policy. We're even seeing this in China, uh, you know, at the moment. Um, I, I think it'd be very hard to turn that back and suddenly find big power fiefdoms um, in other parts of government. That being said, the Pentagon has a huge budget. General Flynn has great experience, and it's probably likely to be the most powerful agency of the lot at the moment. How do the adults get back in the room if you presume they're not there now? How do they get back in the room? Well, I, as I think I was indicating earlier, Tom, I think the uh, if General, you know, with General Flynn gone, there's going to be a hope that uh, adults, hope. Uh, you know, will 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 reassert. I think a lot depends <clears throat> on whether the president. You know, who, who likes to be the leader, the man who's in charge, he does not want to be seen as somebody who's having to uh, kowtow to advice from more experienced people. He wants his own voice, especially in the National Security Council, which is yeah. really his lever through to the security sector. So I think, you know, how, does, how, how do we – he may not want a return to the sense of adults in the room. The whole idea of a more unpredictable foreign policy is one that I think he's championed. He feels at the moment uh, the cards have ended up being stacked against the U.S and that the very unpredictability he brings is part of, of America reacquiring strength, not least vis-a-vis -vis Russia. A number of articles uh, about this resignation, including ours at Bloomberg, referenced the Munich Security Conference, which is taking place in a couple of days. Uh, and it made me, me wonder about how this administration sees multilateral gatherings like those versus what we've seen play out here over the past few weeks, meetings with Prime Minister May, meetings with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, uh, meetings yep. with Prime Minister Trudeau yesterday. Uh, clearly, it seems like the, the personal relationship is being prioritized, at least in these early days, over the multilateral meetings. I, th I think th this is a time for the to establish his personal relationships with the other heads of state, given, as I said a minute ago, you know, these are the people who make the big decisions on foreign security policy. However, you know, the, the Munich Security Conference is what it says on the tin. It's the, probably the top security conference uh, that takes place in Europe each year. This would be a good place for General Mattis to, to show up. He's at some meetings for NATO in Brussels this week. Uh, he may stop by, and this has been a traditional position for a U.S. Secretary of Defense, to come and 
share the view of the administration with uh, other ga gathered figures. Now, this is different, I would say, from the kind of multilateralism that maybe the G20 or NATO or the European Union or even the UN represents. Here, I think we can see a more muscular uh, uh, U.S. approach to all of those institutions than we've seen in the past. What do you make of the, the role that General Mattis, now Secretary Mattis, has played thus far? Uh, how well has he fit into that new role as Secretary of Defense? As somebody looking at this from the outside, from yeah. London, I think he's, he's played it very well. Um, you know, he was the, the person who was sent out to calm nerves in East Asia in particular after the, uh, uh, you know, the uncertainty that would accompany the, uh, the president's arrival, not least given his comments about you know, Japan being a currency manipulator and his comments about uh, South Korea and Japan and maybe having to look after their own defense with nuclear weapons. You know, these are incendiary comments in normal circumstances, but with uh, North Korea looking unpredictable, you need needed somebody who could go out and, and, and carry the message of continuity. And I think without looking like he's on the wrong side of the president, without looking like he's overtaken his position, he's played it very well. The most striking moment for me was when the president uh, in the press conference with Prime Minister Theresa May of the UK said, look, I, I, I think uh, torture works, but All on right. this issue, General Mattis overrides me. I mean, that was a powerful yeah. statement. Robin Nibbler, thank you so much on short notice this morning after General Flynn exits last night. Uh, Robin Nibbler with Chatham House uh, this morning. Bob Haber, who worked at Fortress Johnson for years and essentially invented the oddity of convertible and preferred analysis. Bob Haber has worked for years at Fidelity. Uh, among other things, he teaches or has taught at Tufts, I should say, Tufts University uh, on Federal Reserve history. And most particularly, he's on the board of the Boston Celtics. Bob, let's get serious. Nine and one, 655 ball. <laughs> the Celtics are the real thing. There's a modest team from Cleveland a little bit better than them. Can they do it to Cleveland? Well, um, happy Valentine's Day. Um, I yeah. thought you were going to give us some uh, some trade um, ideas. The, you know, this, the trade uh, deadline's coming up, so uh, <laughs> we're on fire. So yeah, we, yeah. We can, <laughs> um, but no, uh, uh, we're. I think we're right in the mix. Yeah, you're in the mix. Nine and one. It's actually like a real Celtics. There's very little grounds for basketball optimism in New York City. That's true. Right well, we so. have to talk Celtic. Well, good morning, Bloomberg 1200 Boston. Bob, it is a melt-up. Um, long ago at Fidelity, uh, you didn't witness 20,000 or 21,000 Dow, but you did arguably invent the idea of grabbing a coupon and some form of optionality into the future with convertibles and preferreds. Tell me about total return right now within a melt-up. Should I pay respect to total return? Um, yeah, we should, you know, should always pay respect to total return. I was looking back, uh, you know, at some of the um, securities I got to own when I started the Fidelity Convertible Securities Fund and comparing uh, yields and dividends and the convertible market to now, and it's, it's, uh, it's an entirely different solar system. Uh, back then, uh, convertibles uh, <clears throat> traded not so much on all the Greeks, but they actually traded on yield relative to premium. They yeah. were spectacular securities. They were the best. If you look back over that period, I think the Convertible Securities Fund was one of the best uh, funds right. in the country. That's all changed. Um, that's obviously all changed. And with rates uh, still 
silly low, um, a lot of those games um, have moved on. Do you assume when we normalize at some point, Bill Gross would suggest it's going to be years out, decades out, others would say tomorrow, but when we normalize, do you just assume bond prices move south, 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 and the only place to find protection is equities? I, you know, normalize, um, you know, one of the series that I keep is that over a long period of time, the 20-year government bond uh, is attracted to the nominal GDP. It's like a magnet. It doesn't happen, as you know, these things take some time uh, to work, but over long periods of time, that's the magnet. So people can think what their uh, nominal GDP estimate is. Right now on the Bloomberg, you can look and say that for 2017, the guesstimates are that nominal will be about 5%. Well, uh, if the 20-year if the bond actually gets to 5% in 2017, we're in trouble in a lot of asset classes. So it will take time, um, and it will take a lot of action by the Fed, because this still may be the easiest Fed ever. Let me ask you just quickly about the Trump trade. We'll come back. Um, but what do, you, what do you make of the Trump trade that we've seen? Uh, and, and the life that it had here, now sort of reckoning, I think, with the reality of the fact that tax reform is going to take a lot of time to get done. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I, I, I've written about recently in Forbes, that you can measure. I mean, I think people understand the Trump trade now is coming back. Uh, the idea is we're going to get a full economic cycle, which is before in the kind of what was called the new normal it really was nothing we'd seen before. Now, I think people are imagining a full economic cycle. By that, I mean animal spirits, banks making loans to people that really shouldn't get them and they don't pay it back, and so on and so forth. Some inflation, a Fed eventually having to take the punch ball away. That's a full economic cycle that we could only dream about when the Trump trade started. Right now, what we see in the Trump trade is an enormous uh, increase in the confidence surveys. So survey, surveys are way up, no matter how you look at them. The National yeah. um, Small Business Surveys, Michigan, you know, the conference board. But yeah. it's a long way from there to actual economic okay. um, growth. Right now with this bomb, Haber, many of you older know the name from Fidelity, uh, ages ago in convertible securities and preferreds. Uh, Bob Haber with Proficio and, of course, a, a nodding acquaintance with a basketball team from Boston as well. Bob, I want to go back to dividends. I believe Mr. Lynch paid homage to dividends and Bettina Dalton and Will Danoff would pay attentions. But now dividend and dividend growth borders on religion. How does Bob Haber respond to the new religion that his dividends are a yield equivalent? Yeah, it won't surprise you that uh, our, our families um, like uh, yield, I like dividend yield. Uh, but we've got to be careful uh, where we source it from. Uh, so We've kind of come off some of the traditional names, uh, utilities and telecom, and right now we think people might want to take a look at the MLPs and own them individually if they can because there's some good tax benefits. So that looks like an area that's had a, a, you know, it's had a, a, a complete flame out. It's stabilized, and the parts of the Trump agenda that look to be moving forward include infrastructure, which tends to include a lot of pipelines and the types of stuff the MLPs are involved in. So that's an area to, that we really um, uh, are excited about. Help me understand how you're regarding volatility right now. I look at the VIX that are hovering around 11. What do you make of that? What do you make of volatility at this moment? 
Yeah, so that's both both for treasuries and um, for equities. Uh, almost uh, VIX is almost uh, record low, and treasury volatility is low. So you know, it it, it makes um, it's an opportunity that the market can give you. It's it's also an indicator. It's not it's not an indicator of higher prices. Usually, it's an indicator of of you know a yellow light of caution. But just for example, one trade you know that we're looking at that people could consider is. Uh, you can uh, take out a lot of capital in the market, buy uh, some short-term investment-grade paper, and combine that with very cheap call options and get yourself a terrific asymmetric risk trade where you virtually have no downside over a couple, three years if you pick the credit correctly, and you'll ride in something like three-quarters or 80% of the upside. So we try and look for opportunities when the market is at these, uh, you know, whatever extremes. How different is this post-election environment than those uh, in the past? You had a great line, I think, in a recent column of yours. You said, uh, the twists and turns have already begun because twisty is going to be the new reality. As you're allocating, as you're looking at portfolios, what's different about this moment in time? Well, I think what's different is we're seven years into a bull market and, and an economic cycle, and just now the market seems to want to think we're entering a full economic cycle. And assets are expensive. Uh, Almost all assets are expensive. So uh, we think hedging uh, or thoughts about hedging and really paying attention to sentiment are important. Bob, help me here with the double-digit reality since 2009 and the cult of a single-digit return and actuarial assumptions going down, down. We saw Harvard management step aside from fancy investments I guess to go back to something more Bob Haber vanilla, what 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 do we do now to catch up if we haven't been in a buy and hold on on the S and P five hundred? Yeah, so you know I, I'm sure as you know better than me that you'd never want to feel like you've got to catch up. Um, and so what we believe in, what we preach is um, extreme diversification, especially at this point in time. So we have um, holdings in equities, bonds, commodities, precious metals, and then truly uncorrelated assets as well. And at this point, because the future really is so cloudy and so many things are at extreme, uh, that, that's the way we've approached it. We think there's value in holding all of those and getting the negative covariance and all those other kind of great math things and getting uh, a look to risk-adjusted return. Because if you try and catch up, if you miss the bull market, you try and catch up, um, you're buying equities right. at very expensive prices. How do you define or discover or use a risk-adjusted approach, say a sharp ratio approach, in a time of financial distortion? Do you plug in your own guesstimate? We, we only use instruments that have reasonably long trading histories and that means they've got to they must have gone through the uh you know the recent financial turbulence so that we can check out if they're truly uncorrelated uh because as you know in those periods everything the correlations go to one so we want to make sure we we try and battle test it that way and then we use a common sense test so when we buy catastrophe bonds for people uh, we think, well, that really is just common sense, not correlated to the equity market. So it's a combination of the, the math, the science, and common sense. At the top of the, the segment here, Tom mentioned that you taught a course at Tufts on the, the history of the Federal Reserve 
Uh, and I don't need to tell you, we're at a very interesting moment for the Fed. Uh, as Janet Yellen prepares to testify on Capitol Hill today, we had the resignation of Dan Tarullo on, on Friday. There were three seats to be filled, here, filled on the uh, Board of Governors. Uh, let's look back and look forward. Uh, and, and what does history tell us about where the Fed is headed, do you think? The Fed has entered a tightening cycle, right? So I, the pace of which uh, you can have like a thousand shows on, but we know what the direction is. It's a tightening cycle, but it is so incredibly easy because of the excess reserve amount that there's no history on this. It's, this is all the, the great human experiment the Fed has created for us. So we know the direction, but we have no idea the time frame and, and, and the other, you know, some of the other factors. Bob Haver, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. For years with Fidelity, Bob Haver with Proficio, uh, uh, and of course um, his work on the Federal Reserve at Tufts University of Note as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.